Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about bean leaf beetles. If you see this problem, um, actually it can be pretty bad because these insects not only feed on soybean plants, they also can inject disease into them. So they're harmful. The good news is they're relatively easy to control. So we're going to talk about bean leaf beetles throughout the show today. We're also going to talk about a number of other agronomic questions and answer your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. If you've got a question for us or anything you'd like to talk about that's going on in your farm right now, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. So I mentioned already with bean leaf beetles how harmful these things can be. And the interesting thing, I think, with bean leaf beetles is they overwinter in the soil as adults. Then they come out in the spring and they're hungry. So when you typically see them in soybeans is, well, like in our farm right now, beans are just emerging in our operation. And so now is exactly the time when you want to be out scouting for bean leaf beetles. So again, we'll talk about that throughout the show, but right now let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, the first one uh, comes from Ibrahim. Or Ibrahim, he said, uh, please elaborate on base saturation and why you feel it's so important. You spend a lot of time talking on your show about this concept, but not all soil tests have it. Why should I consider adding base saturation on my farm, and how would I manage from that information? Okay, so it's something that you absolutely need to have, and here's the reason why. It's going to start to give you an idea on balance of nutrients in your soil. So quite often we get questions from farmers about, well, what's the right ratio of this nutrient to that nutrient in the soil and things like that. And I will generally just say, well, let's start with base saturation. That is the the most basic of ratios and it's five different nutrients. It's a ratio in effect of five different nutrients to each other. So we're talking about calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and hydrogen. Anyway, the reason why this is so important is because if you get one of these nutrients like way out of whack, then you know right away my yield is going to be devastated. So, for example, sodium, we like seeing that percentage less than 1% all the time. If you start getting a sodium level level of even 3%, you're losing a lot of yield and you're headed down a bad path because if that number progressively gets worse, your yield's going to get worse your soil life, your soil health, that is all going to get worse, okay? Hydrogen, thats that tells you the acidity of the soil. So you will have no hydrogen in the soil if your pH is 7 or above. If your pH is less than 7, then you will have hydrogen. So a lot of the times, for most crops, we like seeing a soil pH of around 6.3 to 6.8. Well, that would give you a hydrogen percent of around 2% up to 10%. Now, that's not the case for all crops that we want to see that pH at 6.3 to 6.8, but it is for corn, soybeans, and wheat. So generally, we want that hydrogen to be a little, just not too much, okay? There's a lot of talk about calcium-magnesium ratio, but we look at calcium and magnesium in base saturation 
as a whole, and I'll just tell you, we like seeing calcium above 65%. If we have calcium above 65%, our soil is relatively porous, and we are able to have decent root growth without worrying about tremendously huge levels of compaction most of the time. Whereas magnesium, we want to see that somewhere usually in the 12 to 20% range. The heavier your soil is, the lower we'd like to see that magnesium content because you're still going to have lots of pounds or lots of parts per million in a heavy soil because it can hold so much. So 12% would be great or even, you know, somewhere around that is fine. 20% if your soil's a little bit lighter. We want a little more magnesium in a light soil to try to tighten it up and hopefully hold a few more nutrients and hold more of everything, water and you name it. And then potassium. We get to potassium. We talk about this one the most. We like seeing potassium at a minimum of 4% on the base saturation test. Now, if you have light soil, even 4% might not be enough. But 4%, just as a general statement, is the minimum we like to see. And then we, we will typically say up to 8%. But here again, in light soil, you could actually blow way through that 8%, be it 10 or 12 or whatever, because you have very few pounds in a light soil. That light soil won't hold much of anything. So anyway, base saturation, really important. I encourage everybody to get it on your soil test. It will definitely help you make more money on your farm and better invest your fertilizer dollars. Thanks for the questions. We really appreciate that. This one comes from Michael up in Manitoba. He said, I normally drive down to your winter workshops. Couldn't make it due to COVID this year, but hoping to get to your field day this summer. My parents put on compost on their garden to an excessive level. It's the middle two of the soil samples I'm sending you. As you can see, parts per million through the roof on many of the nutrients. However, the base saturation is way out of whack. Would you recommend adding more calcium? Would dolomitic lime be a potential source? And uh, let's see. And for the rest of the nutrients, I'm going to use some liquid products to address any micronutrient issues. But wow, the micros look pretty good. Micros are pretty high. <laughs> well, about everything is pretty high. And that is one of the problems sometimes. Okay, so one of the reasons we like having a base saturation test done in general is it's not always about nutrient deficiencies. Sometimes it's about nutrient excess. So sodium, for example, on his test is really, really high. It's 5.2 and 5.7%. That's too much. So there are two ways to address that. Number one, we try to make sure we don't put anything with sodium on for years till we get that level down. The next thing is we want to make sure we have good drainage so you can turn the sodium into a salt with something like sulfur, and then it is leachable and will go out uh, with normal drain or you know when you have good drainage with normal rainfall and then the other thing you could do is yes I would put on more calcium there because his magnesium levels are 26 27 percent his calcium is only 54 53 percent so by putting more calcium on it will thereby lower the percentage for magnesium and sodium and make his soil a little bit more healthy stay tuned we'll be right back weed control without the bs that's more time to apply without wasting time. That's flexible tank mixing that doesn't bend the truth. That's near zero volatility with unmovable principles. With the Enlist weed control system, there is no sacrificing. Get better weed control with no ifs, ands, or buts at Enlist.com. Enlist.com. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. 
But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans. Elite genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. If you're a student seeking a career in agriculture or just want to learn more about raising good crops, at Ag PhD, we have some great news for you. On Saturday, June 26th, we're holding an Ag PhD Young Farmers Field Day right here on our farm. In addition to providing great information, we'll be heading into the fields to show you the principles of agronomy and crop scouting firsthand. College scholarships will be available to eligible attendees too. For more information and to register for the Young Farmers Field Day, visit agphd.com. This is Quick Dick McDick from Tufnell asking you, have you heard of Mandaco Land Rollers? They're the ones with the green paint, and I'm not talking about the green paint that requires a technician and a laptop to fix. I'm talking about the Mandaco green paint that doesn't need fixing because it's built tough. We're talking 5-8 thick, 42-inch diameter drums, people, and I've learned never to talk about size unless you can back it up when a measuring tape gets pulled out. So keep your seed and rocks in the ground where they belong and get yourself a roller at mandaco.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're going to talk about an insect problem today that, that can hit multiple crops, but primarily soybeans, bean leaf beetle. But we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions all throughout the show. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us radio at agphd.com. Let's head to those phone lines to start things off. Got Lonnie on with us right now. Lonnie, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Darren. How are you? You know, doing pretty well. We're starting to see some crop pop up here, and that always gets us fired up. How about you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um Sounds like you guys need some rain. You know, this is a widespread problem, and and I think. Oh, go ahead. We could send some your way. We could send some your way. We're waiting, waiting for things to dry out so we can get back in the field. So okay. (laughs) All right. So you got a question Um, for us today, Lonnie? Well, I got two questions. Uh, Number one, when I was an FFA long time ago, our FFA uh, instructor. Uh, always told us the, about the basic elements of plant, plant growth, the basics, and he had a saying called C. Hopkins Cafe Mighty Good. Have you ever heard of that? Nope, never heard of that. Okay, well, it breaks down as C, you know, you, you, you take the periodic table, the yep. C, yep. and then you take uh, C, Cafe, C-A, and then the F-E, and then you, then the Hopkins, you got the H, the O, the PK. You skip the I, then you have N for nitrogen, and then MG for magnesium. And it, yep. I mean, I'm I'm 57 years old, and that is stuck in my head ever since we went through all that years ago. And yep. It, and I've I've never heard you guys say anything about that, but they, it's just always. And I just didn't know if you'd ever heard of that. Nope, never heard of that one. There are a lot of memory tricks like that out there that a lot of people will will use. That that one just never made it our direction here. So, nope, we haven't heard that one before. (laughs) Okay, and then the other thing is we took on some ground that uh, the neighbor had a lot of foxtail. Okay. 
And we, uh, you know, it's just like it's madded out there on the field. Am I better off burning that off before I put on uh, burn down or anything? Because I'm afraid it's going to be like a sponge and just soak everything up. Um, okay, here's the reason why I'm usually not a fan of burning stuff. Because a lot of your nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that's in all the residue on the soil surface and just below is going to go up in the air. Uh, nitrogen especially, but even the P and K, roughly a third of that will go up in the air. So I hate losing the valuable nutrients. So typically when we run into the exact same scenario like what you're talking about, we just plan on making one extra application if it's even necessary. So what crop is going to go in there? Uh, well, corn and beans we've got uh, in, you know, in okay. two different places. Roundup ready corn? Uh, we, 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 uh, no. Conventional <laughs> Conventional corn. How about soybeans? Conventional or Roundup? Conventional. Conventional. Okay, gotcha. So anyway, if it was me and I said, all right, I want to leave it out there without burning, I, I, I just very much prefer that. And it's better for the environment too, you know, Lonnie. But anyway, the, 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 the big thing is I'd start with a full rate of a group 15 herbicide like Harness, Surpass, Outlook, Dual, something like that in corn. Then I'd come a little bit later on with like an HPPD product. Maybe it's Callisto or Laudis and a little bit of Atrazine. And then you've always got Accent as a rescue product if the foxtail continues to come. With soybeans, I'd start out with either Prowl or Trifluralin. Then I'd follow early post-emerge with a Group 15 like Warrant, Dual, uh, something like that. Uh, and then later on, if you need to, it costs like $3 an acre to run out there with clethodum. That'd be generic select. So it's very inexpensive in soybeans to take that that grass out, even with three passes of herbicide. In corn, costs a little bit more money to do it if you have to use the accent. Otherwise, the group 15s aren't bad in price and the HPPDs are cheap. Okay. So that's what I would do. Okay, well, we'll uh, pass that word on to my spray guy then. Sure, and one last thing that I will say, oh, and, and two, if you need uh, anything, you know, more in writing from us or whatever, just send us an email, radio at agphd.com, and we can, you know, give you a, a little more recipe or prescription or, you know, the, the information we just talked about. But I was also going to say, when we talk about tillage versus no tillage, when you do less tillage, you will have fewer of those foxtails germinating and growing. What we have typically found is if you stay in no-till for three or four years, a lot of the foxtail problem just starts to go away. Unfortunately, not, not at this place because it's been in no-till for a long time. Well, well okay. It, it's frustrating. Well, let me say this. You have to kill the weeds that come up. If And I right. should have thrown that out there. If you don't kill the weeds every year, then yes, the problem's going to continue to compound and get worse. But I can just tell you, even from firsthand experience, where we've gone no-till versus where we've done tillage, we just find that where we do tillage, we have far more foxtails than when we go no-till, provided, again, that every single year we're killing every weed in the field. Right, right. All right. Well, hey, Lonnie, okay. thanks for the call. Good luck. Yep, yep. Bye. All right, talking bean leaf beetles today, and we got Dean Grossnickel with us with Syngenta. Dean, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, crops are generally a little bit ahead of us here in South Dakota when, when we're talking about Iowa crops. So maybe you guys see bean bean leaf beetles a little bit sooner too. What are you seeing out there and, and what should growers get prepared for? Well, I mean, really, when we talk about bean leaf beetles, we got to understand really, uh, you know, uh, they do have a little bit of mortality over the winter. I do know that uh, Iowa State University put out a, a bulletin here at the end of April talking about, you know, over, you know, this last winter, what was our mortality on bean leaf beetles? And uh, obviously, the, the further south you go, they survive a little bit more. So in southern Iowa, they only had about 50 to 60% mortality in southern Iowa. They'd be south of I-80. As you go up the state, you're in that uh, 60 to 70% range. You know, like I, I live around Ames, Iowa, and a little bit north. And uh, so we about have 60 to 70% mortality. As we move north up into that northern tier of counties, it was 80, 85% mortality. So the, the cold temperatures that we received there in, in February did a number on the bean leaf and beetle mortality uh, here. And so uh, I think the cold weather helped us a little bit here. So um, as you get into South Dakota and, and even into southern Minnesota, I would bet that uh, a lot of your bean leaf beetles uh, took a bite from Mother Nature there. So uh, I feel really uh, bad about that, Dean. Man, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hopefully the soybean aphids did too. Okay, so so talk to us then about, about bean leaf beetles just a little more. Let's just say that a farmer, they get, they get them and they're bad. Do you need a residual yeah. for these or, or are you going to see most of them hit at the same time? So really, obviously, the, the bean leaf beetles that, you know, uh, it takes a certain amount of growing degree days or heat units for them to see that first generation. And that's roughly around 1,200 uh, heat units. So you can kind of gauge, uh, you know, if you're paying attention to those heat units, when that first, uh, first um, generation is going to come out. But generally, they're going to be attracted more to those uh, first planted soybean fields that are out there. And... Um, so you're going to want to concentrate on, on those fields. If you use the seed treatment, say like a Cruiser Max Vibrance or any other uh, seed treatment that had a neonic in them, uh, you know, that, those are going to have some systemic qualities to them. And, and if you had been that first generation of bean leaf beetles coming in there, they're going to eat on them and die relatively quickly. If we skip that, that seed treatment that had that neonic, uh, then you're going to have to look for that feeding. Once we get feeding up and around that 20, 30%-ish range, we're going to want to hit them with an insecticide and then try and take care of that first generation. Typically in our states, Iowa and North, we only have two generations per year that we got to really concentrate on. And uh, your southern states have about three generations. Well, I like so, the idea uh, that the cold weather is knocking out a huge percentage of this first generation. That that bodes well for us this year. Talking with Dean Grossnickel with Syngenta. Dean, thank you so much. Really appreciate the info. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. 
When it comes to trusted herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. And you certainly know New Farm exclusive Weedmaster. For decades, Weedmaster has been the go-to herbicide for consistent burndown weed control in a huge variety of crops, and in range and pasture management too. Don't let yield-robbing weeds stand in the way of your progress or profits. New Farm and Weedmaster Herbicide, here to help. Don't miss the Ag PhD Field Day this year. After postponing last season, we're back and better than ever, and we have a lot of catching up to do. With the latest in ag technologies on display in our plots, in-person sessions with the world's top farmers, and tons of entertainment, food, and more, it's a day you won't want to miss. Thursday, July 29th, right here on the Hefty Farm. For more information and to register for the Ag PhD Field Day, visit agphd.com. Help keep the toughest, most resistant diseases out of your fields with Lucento fungicide from FMC. An exclusive novel premix of two modes of action delivers broad-spectrum control and a long-lasting protective residual. Tackle key diseases in corn, soybeans, wheat, peanuts, and sugar beets. Choose Lucinto fungicide from FMC. Visit your FMC retailer or lucinto.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions for use. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards. And that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio, and we're talking about bugs. And specifically today, we're talking about bean leaf beetles. But whenever we talk insects, one of the guys we love to have on is Bob Wright from University of Nebraska. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Oh, good to talk to you. We, we were just talking to... Um, to Dean Grossnickel with Syngenta over in the state of Iowa, and he said they were documenting mortality of bean leaf beetles with some of these cold nights that we've had. Have you noticed the same thing in Nebraska, that some of the cold nights have actually helped us with bug control? Well, in Nebraska, we had a... Are you talking about recently or over winter? Well, over winter in general and even recently. Yeah. Okay, well, over winter, in a lot of places in Nebraska, we had pretty good snow cover, so... We were looking at soil temperatures, and at least four-inch soil temperatures didn't drop down a lot in a lot of areas. Uh, so at least for some of the, the soil-borne insects, like rootworms or some things that are deeper in the soil, we don't think there was that much mortality from the extreme cold. Uh, bean leaf beetles tend to, to overwinter close to the surface, and leaf litter or uh, 
crop residue, so uh, they might be more exposed. Yeah, that it is interesting how how different bugs are in different spots. So when you think about, we see a lot of guides in terms of how many growing degree days and how much heat it's going to take to get certain bugs started out there. Is that why we sometimes see bean leaf beetles getting going a little sooner? Yeah, and they're they're an early season. They're active early in the season. Uh, a lot of years, sometimes in April or even early March, if it's a warm spring. So they're they're active feeding on alfalfa or other legumes before soybeans emerge, and uh, as soon as soybeans emerge, they're ready to start feeding on them. And they're they're pretty good flyers. They'll fly around and search out the early emerging soybean fields. You know, you, you talk about that, and I've seen this in the past where there's just been a mass migration moving out of an alfalfa field and into a soybean field, and it can be a disaster really quick. Do you encourage farmers to be scouting the alfalfa then just to get an idea of what might be coming? Yeah, that's especially if they're going to be harvesting the alfalfa, that'll drive the bean leaf beetles out of the alfalfa field. Uh, but again, the, the beetles can fly pretty good distances, so you really need to be scouting the soybean fields primarily, I think. Okay, so when you say the beetles can fly around, does crop rotation make a big difference? Do you see them overwintering more in soybean fields? Or uh, if you're a first-year soybean guy coming out of corn or coming out of wheat, do you have much grace period there or the beetles are going to find you? No, the rotation doesn't affect them that much. They, they typically overwinter outside of the field anyway, near the field, but outside of the field in more protected areas, either grassy borders or if there's a shelter belt nearby. Now, one of the things that Dean had mentioned is that expect that there will be multiple generations of bean leaf beetles. How many do you expect to see in the state of Nebraska, and is the first generation the most critical to manage? Oh, probably the first and the last. Uh, it's a little confusing because there's three periods of adult activity. We have the overwintered beetles, which emerged last fall, late summer. And then there'll be two more generations or, or broods of beetles that emerge this summer. And then the, the last emerging beetles in the summer over winter. So there's three periods of time when there's beetle activity. And the last the last uh, generation is where, where we potentially can get pod feeding. So that's often an issue. Uh, the main thing with the bean leaf beetles now is, again, they They'll tend to concentrate on the early emerging fields, so that's where you need to concentrate your scouting, and they they will fly around. So if you're the only early emerging field in an area, you might get concentration of bean leaf beetles in that field. Yeah, there's a big push this year for growers that wanted to put soybeans in early and see what they could get out of that in terms of potential additional yield. But one of the problems with that could be, as as Bob Wright with University of Nebraska here is identifying early emerging fields are often a big target for bean leaf beetles. Bob, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on, and good luck here heading into the spring. Okay, thank you. You too. Let's head up to North Dakota. We've got Ryan Hunt with us right now. He works with FMC. Ryan, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you doing? Good. Well, you know, one of the advantages of being further north is that you can watch the guys to the south and see what kind of bug problems they have and, and disease problems, then adjust accordingly. How about with bean leaf beetles? Do you find a lot of growers in your state using seed treatments to fight them, or are they most often just scouting in the field and spraying when they see them? 
Yeah, you know, it's there's a lot of seed treatments going out there for it, but at the same time, you still those aren't going to be a hundred percent. So you know, when we're talking in the cells that they're coming already, we're probably going to see them eventually. Um, you know, the seed treatment only lasts so long, so you want to want to stay on top of that and scout it because they can really wipe out that field pretty quick if they they really pile in there. Now, we were just talking with Bob Wright with the University of Nebraska. He was just pointing out that alfalfa is often a place where insects go. It's growing early, it's green, and it's another legume crop, so bugs like bean leaf beetles might be hanging out in there. What are you seeing in alfalfa? Have you got much regrowth? Did you get impacted by freezing temperatures, and, and it looks tough? You know, it's... Uh it's been so dry that it's really just starting to green up right now. So it's, it's tough to say what's out there yet. Um, but you know, that's just where we we're growing that alfalfa. It's been so dry that it's, you know, that regrowth is just really starting right now. So, you know, here shortly would be the time to really pay attention in there. Cause once those beans start emerging, you know, it'll be quick. Yeah, it sure will be. Okay, how's planting going in North Dakota? You mentioned how dry it is and stuff's just having a tough time getting started here. Are you seeing some fields up? Yeah, no, there's small grains starting to come up. There's some guys replanting some small grains because they sat in the dry for so long. Um, it seems like corn is about done everywhere. When we go up further north, there's still canola left to be seeded, though, because they're waiting trying to hope to get a rain um because you can't plant it as deep to where the moisture is like you can these larger seeded crops right yeah that's that's right it's it's just an interesting year no doubt about that uh when we're talking about insect control in general ryan i know uh, fmc has been involved in the the insecticide game for a long long time and there's quite a few different products out there and different modes of action what do you see when you're choosing a mode of action in soybeans there's certain things that you're looking for uh certain certain things that you say man we got to make sure we can at least control this bug because it can really take off on us yeah, you know, so it's kind of, you know, you always hear, we preach resistance management in weed control. You hear a lot about that with your herbicides and different modes of action. Well, it's, it's really the same thing for insects and insecticides. We just don't, for some reason, we kind of seem to think of that as a secondary thing. We're just going to, oh, we'll just go out and spray them and kill them. But, you know, the same thing happens. You get a population that gets resistant to a pyrethroid, um, you know, like soybean aphids, for instance. You know, kind of across southern Minnesota and getting into the Red River Valley, there's some talks and some claims of some resistance to the pyrethroids that have been used so much. So that's really where you want to look for something new or something with another mode of action. You know, the lowers ban kind of being taken off the market or less of it available out there kind of really hurts that a little bit. But there are other options out there. Um, you know, we really rely on those pyrethroids, but um, eventually we're going to have to start spending a little more money on some of these newer things that are coming along. 
Yeah, there are definitely new things to take a look at, and and I agree. Every year we've got to look at what options are out there, run the pencil on them a little bit, and see, you know, do I need to change things up? Do I need to mix things up? Because even in North Dakota, we find so many growers that are raising lots of different crops, and that's wonderful to have that kind of crop rotation. But if we're always using uh, the same pyrethroid every time, like Mustang Max is super popular, and we see growers, yep, I'm using that in this crop, and I'm using it in that crop, and I'm using it in that crop. Uh, we need to look at some different things, whether it's Hero or Stewart or some of these others, to try to mix it up on the bugs a little bit. Talking with Ryan Hunt up in North Dakota. Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Yep, thanks for having me. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, we're talking about bean leaf beetles and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Introducing the next generation of weed control in wheat, Wide AR Match Herbicide. Uh, I'm sorry, is this a typo? I mean, there's an AR in the middle of Wide Match. Mm-hmm, that's the name. It's called Wide R Match Herbicide. Oh, my bad. From the top. <clears throat> Introducing Wide R Match from Corteva AgriScience. It's not a typo. It's an upgrade. The AR stands for Arlax Active for improved control of the toughest broadleaf weeds and wheat. Talk with your retailer to learn more. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people. And we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients. AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. If you're a student seeking a career in agriculture or just want to learn more about raising good crops, at Ag PhD, we have some great news for you. On Saturday, June 26th, we're holding an Ag PhD Young Farmers Field Day right here on our farm. In addition to providing great information, we'll be heading into the fields to show you the principles of agronomy and crop scouting firsthand. College scholarships will be available to eligible attendees too. For more information and to register for the Young Farmers Field Day, visit agphd.com. Pentair Hypro 3D nozzles are your premier choice for fungicide applications. Syngenta fungicide application field trials have shown Hypro 3D nozzles provide a yield advantage of up to 10% over other nozzles, maximizing the return on your fungicide investment. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. 
Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases a seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We've been talking about bean leaf beetles. And Brian, this is one of those bugs that we've been fighting on our farm for a long time. We don't have them every year in large quantities, but it's very common for us to see some bean leaf beetles out there. We've got a seed treatment on with a neonic seed treatment, and I know Dean Grossnickel was talking about that. If you've got that neonic Yep, the bug has to take a bite of your plant, and you could still get disease passed to your plant when the bug takes that bite. So it's a good method to make sure you get them under control, but maybe uh, assisting with the post-emerge spray as well to try to kill them before they bite into your plant might not be a bad idea if you've got a lot of them. You know, here's the way I look at a lot of these insect issues. Are you a person who regularly sprays insecticide or do you never spray insecticide? When you never spray insecticide, that's when you're going to have a lot of disasters. And I'm not saying, oh, everybody has to spray insecticide all the time. I'm simply saying when you haven't used insecticide at all on your farm for the last, let's call it five years, you need to be scouting on a very regular basis because you might not just have a few out there, you might have a few trillion out there. And that's what we worry about. So there is a point with this bean leaf beetle thing too where quite frankly just a few in the field is a real problem because of like what Darren was talking about with this disease issue when we see more disease especially right now I mean we have $14 new crop soybeans we can't have yield loss it costs so much money and the insecticide costs $2 So I just really encourage you to be scouting more than you ever have before. If you get these things early, that's when you want to get it done. The problem with a lot of insect sprays, it's it's what we call a revenge kill. Those bean leaf beetles, here's what they're doing. They're coming out of the ground right now. They're going to eat. Then they're going to mate. And then they're going to lay eggs. Well, if you wait three weeks and then you finally go look at the field and notice, oh, I got a bunch of bean leaf beetles, I better spray today. Well, you're too late. Number one, they've already done the yield damage in terms of feeding on the plant. Number two, they've already injected disease into the plant. And number three, they've already laid eggs. So you're not helping at all. That is not an economic treatment. Early is an economic treatment. In other words, it's going to pay off that $2 investment with probably multiple bushels per acre if there are many bean leaf beetles out there. But you got to be looking early. So scouting early in the season is, I'd almost say more important than scouting later in the season, but scouting all the time is important. But just be out there on a very regular basis. Don't wait until you're going to go spray something in your soybeans in three weeks or a month or whatever it is to then look. Be out in your fields, look for bean leaf beetles. They're very easy to spot because they've got a black triangle right behind their head on their back. So if you see that black triangle on the back, right behind the head, you know you've got bean leaf beetles. I don't care what color it is. I don't care how many other spots there are. I don't care how big it is. Black triangle, bean leaf beetle, kill them. 
All right. I love that. That's the blunt. That's the blunt response. Right? I always appreciate that. Okay. Uh, we got a few questions that have come into the ag PhD mailbag. Uh, have we been in there already, Janelle? Yes, yeah, we have. We have. Okay. Yep. Uh, okay. Get this one from MB. Uh, it says boron. You talk about boron a lot as an important yep. nutrient. Which yep. source are you using more in your on your farm? In our country, we've got ulexida or we've got boric acid as choices. But what farms do you like to use? I've never heard of ulexida, but I just know this: um, there are a lot of different boron sources out there. I don't really care all that much what it is as long as it works. So we've typically been using a dry boron applied in the fall. I like that in our heavy soils. We do it right before freeze up. So it's just like we would have applied it in the spring. And then we're able to build soil levels. Now, if all a person is after is feeding the crop, you can certainly do some banding of low-rate liquid products. You can do a little bit of foliar feeding. You just always have to be careful with boron about not getting too much in one spot and hurting plants. So I, I know that people commonly talk about boron toxicity. That's very much lessened if you have heavier soil, you have lots of rainfall, and especially if you have good calcium levels. So we're usually talking calcium levels in excess of 65% in a base saturation test. If you've got those things, you're in good shape. All right, thanks for the question. We've got this one from Kevin, and Kevin's got a series of questions to go along with the soil sample, Brian. He said, I've got a high organic muck soil. Oh, wow, from, 22% from, organic matter. Yeah, from southern Minnesota, and it's planted mostly to continuous corn because we always have white mold issues in this field and soybeans. We've system tiled the field, but it still drains poorly. Yep. I wonder if you would comment on a few fertility issues. First of all, how much lime should I apply? apply with high <laughs> organic peat soils what ph should i even be shooting for and will lime help me with my iron ochre drainage issues as well okay so the iron ochre he's talking about is this stuff this iron ochre gets around the tile lines and starts to plug them up so will that help um, and getting more lime out there that's a, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure on that. I, I know this. When I look at your iron levels, they're 292 for parts per million. 292. So that's what we would call off the charts. And that's really why you've got a problem. In addition to, you got 22% organic matter. So stuff just isn't moving through that soil very well. Uh, he has a 4.5 for soil pH. 4.5. So it's no wonder he's asking about lime. I totally get it. And that, that should help with some of the issues that you've got there, raising up that, uh, that calcium level and certainly lowering the hydrogen level. Um, will you have better soil porosity by having more calcium out there? Sure you will. So will that help a little bit with the iron ochre thing? I, I don't know. I, I would just say this. Back when Francis Childs was the world record corn producer, raising over 400 bushel corn, one of his big secrets was he had really high iron levels in his soil. And he kept mining those out, basically, by getting his crop roots deeper and deeper and deeper. So seeing 292 parts per million of iron doesn't scare me. But what it does tell me is, hey, we need to get some of these other things in balance. So, for example, you've got 0.6 parts per million of copper. Well, we'd like to see that copper level up around three parts per million uh, to start getting things in balance. 
with phosphorus. You've got 50 on a P1, 80 on a P2, so we'd like to see your zinc at least 5 to be in a 10 to 1 ratio. Well, your zinc's at 2.2, so I would be addressing that. And then, um, yeah, overall, I, I would lime, but since your magnesium is clear down to 4.6%, I would consider a dolomitic lime. Uh, you can certainly try a calcitic lime if that's all that's available to you, but having a dolomitic lime with some magnesium probably would not hurt. All right. And then also, how much nitrogen would I put on ground like this for 200 bushel corn? When you think about all that organic matter, will okay. I get nitrogen from that? And then would you pick certain types of nitrogen that I should look at? All right. So if you own the ground, then I don't know if I'd worry about it that much with all these different nutrients. When you rent the ground and you see organic matter levels of 22%, that's a an absolute, hey, I'm banding almost everything I'm putting out there kind of deal. So we have some really heavy river bottom ground, for example. We've had the best response by strip tilling, and then we plant right over the strip. So we know we have a much better chance to get those nutrients into the plant. All right. Thanks for the questions. Uh, I got this from Jackie. I'm wondering, does bacteria... Oh, hey, wait a oh. second. I don't know if I actually answered his question there. He asked about nitrogen. How much would I put on for 200 bushel corn? Correct. You might you might need some more than normal and run some experiments. It, it, it doesn't cost much money, especially in a year like this year where you could really gain something. So I, I would say, all right, I'm going to probably put on maybe 10% or 20% more than normal if it was 200 bushel corn in a normal field. But then on top of that, I would try 50 pounds more, 100 pounds more, 150 pounds more, just in some strips and just see what happens. So run some experiments. I mean, this is, it's crazy soil when you have 22% organic matter, crazy. Now you can eventually get it down there. You could do more tillage there, doing everything you can to raise more crop there is going to help. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's harder to manage and you absolutely need more nitrogen than in a normal field. We'll continue with the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Don't miss the Ag PhD Field Day this year. After postponing last season, we're back and better than ever, and we have a lot of catching up to do. With the latest in ag technologies on display in our plots, in-person sessions with the world's top farmers, and tons of entertainment, food, and more, it's a day you won't want to miss. Thursday, July 29th, right here on the Hefty Farm. For more information and to register for the Ag PhD Field Day, visit agphd.com. If you're looking to get the most out of your foliar nutrition and fungicide programs, ask your ag retailer about Nutex EDA from Sipcam Agro. Nutex EDA has been proven to increase foliar micronutrient tissue levels and maintain those levels for an extended period of time. When tank mixed with fungicides, Nutex EDA helps support plant health, resulting in higher quality and yields. Nutex EDA is an affordable and effective solution that should be part of every grower's high-yield toolbox. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. 
And dad always said farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim. I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH. Built by farmers. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. <sighs> Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got an email from Scott and he said, I love what you guys are doing. Got a question for you. We plant a small amount of corn and soybeans, but mainly working on lawn and turf management. And I'm having a problem with annual bluegrass in my tall fescue lawns in the spring. I know it will die out once it gets hot here in North Carolina, but I'm wondering if there's a herbicide that I could spray. You know, the tough thing is being selective, killing one grass and not killing others. And there are plenty of products out there that have active ingredients like rim sulfuron, met sulfuron that get used in a lot of crops and, and in turf situations for warm season turf grasses, like Bermuda grass, for example. Uh, other products that get used, like Baylan, you have to wait six weeks to seed after you put Baylan out there. And I know we hear about Baylan and some other crops as well, or Benefin. Uh, the, the challenge is annual bluegrass germinates in the late summer or early fall. So the timing of when you're putting products out is going to be important, not just the products. So things like uh, ethofumisate or Prograss, late fall applications, uh, things like Exonerate, which is amacarbazone, would be interesting for spring treatment. But let's face it, Brandon and I are not tall fescue lawn experts, and we're certainly not turf grass North Carolina experts. So hopefully those products and those active ingredients give you at least something to, to go on and do a little bit more research on and see what works best or what, what folks are recommending in your local area. Hey, thanks, Scott. We do appreciate the, the comment. Thanks for, for checking our show, too. We really appreciate that. Okay, got a few questions from Jackie. We were talking about bacterial leaf blight. And Jackie asks, does bacterial leaf blight stay on the seed if you've seen it in the crop or is it in the soil or does it show up in certain growing conditions? First of all, yes, it can stay on the seed and it often overwinters on seed and in the crop residue. 
Uh, it can certainly move in as well with, I, I love how our state university, South Dakota State University describes it. They say wind swept thunderstorms. And I think that's so descriptive that when you get those winds that just drive the rain in, a lot of times we see a bacterial leaf blight type thing happen afterwards or bacterial infections. So definitely can. And your other question is, can you test seed for it? Well, we can't, but but you sure can. Uh, so talk to seed testing labs in your area and see if, if you're concerned about that. And you say, you know, I think I've seen a little bacterial leaf leaf blight out there. I may not want to save my seed. I may, may want to get some new seed. All right. A uh, couple of questions from David. He said, we are in the northern lower mitten of Michigan. And our average yearly rainfall is 34 inches. We've got light soils and a short growing season. We're pretty sandy here, mostly potatoes and pine trees. But looking for an annual crop we could plant for hay production to feed cattle. Wondering if you know of something that would have good tonnage to it uh, and, and would be easy for us to raise. But that's a good question for your area, David. That's not necessarily our specialty, but, you know, in our area, growers are raising a lot of different things for hay, uh, whether it be uh, grass or an alfalfa type thing. The, the challenge that we get in a lot is people want to do blends of legumes and grass. We'd suggest picking one or the other. That way, weed control is a lot easier, insect control is a little more predictable, and so forth. Yeah. And in terms of exactly which crop you want to raise, boy, I, I, I don't know. I would just ask some other farmers and people who raise livestock around your area what they've had success with in your area and your soils. So if it gets to that point and you say, all right, we want to raise this crop and you send us your soil tests, you know, we can help you with that and help you get the most production out of whatever crop it is you choose to raise. But yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of people out there raising, I mean, all kinds of different crops, lots of different hay choices. So Yeah, and, I, and a lot of times what yeah. we'll see, and, and David's a young guy, and he, he's really into the cattle operation. That's awesome. Having that passion is going to be a really good, really good advantage for you. Here's your shot. Do a little bit of testing. Plant a few acres of a number of different things each year and, and start to learn which ones work for you the best. And, you know, maybe it, maybe it's something different than what your neighbors are raising, too, because maybe it just works for your management style and your soils a little better than it does for other folks. So don't be afraid to do a little experimentation. Uh, one other experiment David's interested in is strip tillage. He said, my dad and I would like to build a strip-till machine. Our idea is we could run it in the spring ahead of the corn planter. Uh, and he's wondering about some design ideas, but also just wondering, what do we think about spring strip tillage? If we aren't applying nutrients, if we are applying nutrients, how that might work out. Okay. If we're going to go out and do strip till, we almost always like to put fertilizer on at the same time, because why not save a trip? So that's the first thing. Second thing is if you're going to spring strip till, strip till, that means you're pretty much stuck to doing it with coulters. Because I want you to think about this. If you're going to use a shank, well, now that means you're going to go deeper. And when you go deeper, you're going to find more moisture. In the spring, in the northern part of the United States, it's cold. So you're probably going to be hitting moisture very commonly in those cold soils early on. And let's put it this way. By the time that ground is fit, 
let's call it eight inches deep or something like that, you probably could have been planting a week earlier. And we don't want to delay planting. We know that delaying corn planting, and don't listen to these people that are going to tell you, oh, the soil has to be a certain temperature. No, it doesn't. The soil can be 45 degrees. We plant a lot of our corn when it's 45 degrees, and it's phenomenal. So my point here is simply we don't want you to have to delay your corn planting because you're waiting for uh, for that, that soil or corn planting or whatever planting it is. For, you're waiting for that soil to warm up and dry out down below so it's fit to run a shank. So we use shank machines. You could run coulters in the fall too, but you know the shank machines, they're really designed for fall, at least in the northern part of the United States and southern Canada, because then typically that soil is drier and it isn't just coming out of the winter time where there's still frost in the ground and all that kind of stuff. But we do like strip-till machines. I, I mean, it's very nice for placement, and especially if you're renting ground, then you can put the fertilizer where the crop has the best chance to recover it. So it works really well in 30-inch rows. When you start getting into different row spacings, let's say you're running 15s or 20s, it's a lot harder to get residue to flow through on that. So it's almost always 30-inch row, guys, where we're, we're talking strip-till machines. All right, Brian. Uh, also wanted to get to a... a couple of questions that we've had and we'll see if we have time here uh first one soybeans are starting to pop up didn't get the three pre's on now what is my next best bet expecting to see some weed pressure out there what weeds small seeded broadleaves okay so i would start with a group 15 plus a ppo so if you want to use a combination product that would be something like warrant ultra that has the active ingredients in warrant or same thing as harness plus flexstar or you could use Anthem Max that's got the active ingredients found in the Group 15 Zidua and the PPO Cadet. But the point is, that way we've got two shots, both with residual, uh, that will have activity on those small-seeded broadleaves. And at least the PPO portion, either the Flexstar or Cadet, will have contact activity too. So it will kill emerged weeds and leave your residual for future weed flushes. Okay, the other thing is cold weather. Uh, getting so many questions really from all over the northern part of the country. Hey, we're still getting down in the 40s. Hey, we've had a recent frost. Uh, not only about Roundup, but also about some of these dicamba products and 240 products guys are using in burn downs. I know. It just it stinks because now crops are starting to come out of the ground and, and there's burn down to be done and everything. And it's just it's cold day after day after day here. We had such nice warm temps early in the spring. I'll just put it to you this way. When the temperature is colder than normal, and especially when those nighttime temps are down below 50 degrees Fahrenheit, we really like seeing higher rates used if you can use them. So, for example, if you were going to run a quart of Roundup, normally. I, I mean, we'll tell guys bump it by 50%. So that means now all of a sudden I'm using a quart and a half. As long as that's still on label, then that's the direction I want to go. Now, as a farmer, let me just say this. I understand wanting to keep rates down, wanting to keep costs down and all that stuff's great. But I know this, the way crop prices are today, we have such a tremendous opportunity to make money. And the other thing is, you can spend like a dollar, two or three dollars more and get great weed control as opposed to getting questionable weed control where you might have to come in and respray. So just spend a little bit of extra money, bump the rate if you can, if it's still labeled, and then it will work. Otherwise, just wait for the weather to warm up. 
All right. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions today. It's always fun talking about agronomic topics, especially now that the crop's starting to pop up too. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.